Welcome back to the show and thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you're all doing well wherever you are out there in the world. It's the first weekend in July as I'm recording this intro and for some reason in New England this time of year, especially around July 4th, like clockwork, there are thunderstorms almost every day. And in fact, the other night I was up late getting some work done. It's like 11 o'clock at night or so, and I hear this really, really loud explosion that just sent me right out of my chair. And at first I was like, did something in my house or neighborhood blow up? What's going on? Did somebody drop a bomb? (laughs) And the house shook a little bit, so I was a little freaked out, Uh, but it turned out that it was just a very close by lightning strike, probably within my neighborhood or maybe across the street. And I've seen lightning strikes really close. I've heard them very close before and heard trees get destroyed, but this one was on a whole other level of loudness for some reason. Uh, But anyway, it's a a very wet and rainy time right here, right now. In fact, I think I can hear some rain starting to hit the roof as I'm recording this, but I digress. I hope you liked last week's episode. It was a really fun conversation getting into some scientific theories and all that. Uh, I got some really good traction with that episode and some nice feedback from people. So thanks for that. It's It was a, a nice opener for this series of interviews that I am going to be doing, have coming up. I am going to try to splice in a few research-based episodes here and there. I'm just about to start work on doing one that's coming up that I think you'll be really excited about. So I can't wait to dig into that one. I've been wanting to do it for quite a while. Anyway, if you ever want to send me a message or have a business inquiry, you can head on over to my website, strangeology.com and head to the contact page. I've got a nice little form there set up, or you can just send a message to info at strangeology.com if that's easier. I also have a blog over on my website, which I'm desperately trying to get around to updating, but I'm stretched a little thin at the moment with everything else I have going on, but enjoy what's there currently. And I want to give a warm welcome to a few new members that have come aboard in the last couple of weeks to the Patreon. So big welcome to Justin, Zachary, and Scott for coming aboard. Thank you guys so much for your support. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, you can head over to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash strangeology. 
We're over 40 members strong, and there are a bunch of cool perks like shout outs, of course, merch discounts to my shop, exclusive merch, ad free episodes, early access to new episodes, along with the exclusive members only Strangeology Beyond episode extension, and more. So, again, that's patreon.com forward slash Strangeology. And you can sign up today for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per month. I appreciate the support. And just a quick reminder before we get started, if you are in the upstate New York, Adirondacks, Hudson Valley, and New England area, I'm going to be vending at the Sasquatch Culling Contest Festival on September 30th in Whitehall, New York. It's going to be on the river in Skeensboro Park and goes from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's free to enter. It's all ages. The calling contest where people do their best Bigfoot calls and vocalizations happens at the end of the day around 5 p.m. They have a little amphitheater set up right on the river and people just let it rip. It's a fun time. So mark your calendars. And if you're going, stop by my tent and say hello. All right, moving on. Today's guest is James Shubsky. He runs an outdoor store in the Columbia River Gorge between Washington State and Oregon. This area may be the next big window area of high strangeness to go on the map because there are some definite weird and unexplainable things that are happening out there. And James is going to fill us in on everything that's happening. And just a quick note on the audio quality coming through on James and about 20 minutes in, there were some technical difficulties, but things were able to be saved. And so if you're wondering why the sound on James audio coming through sounds a little different, it's because he had to switch over his audio recording setup. So without further ado, grab a drink or a snack, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is James Shubsky. James is a former volunteer, search and rescue EMT, mountain guide, and woodland firefighter based in the Columbia River Gorge in Washington State, and is now the chief operating officer of Margie's Outdoor Store, which has been receiving many reports of high strangeness and weird activity in the area. So we're going to let James take us on a journey through this area where there's stories of cryptids, UFOs, and all sorts of unexplained paranormal activity. So, hi, James. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Glad you could be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about your background doing search and rescue and, and being a mountain guide? How did you get into that and, and what caused the shift to get you to where you are now? <laughs> well, yeah, I've been uh, interested in adventure all my life. Um, when I was still a teenager, I joined the Army and uh, as a U.S. Army infantry soldier. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of my professional adventuring. Uh, from there, did some Weldon Forest firefighting in Yellowstone. And, um, you know, while I was in the Army, we got some mountain training. And so me and my Army buddies, we'd go out climbing. I was stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington State, and uh, I'm an Ohio boy originally. 
And so I got out here and wow, the mountains and the oceans and the deserts and the rainforests, uh, it was a paradise. And uh, then, of course, I uh, got out of the Army, uh, went to college, got my degree and, uh, you know, had a uh, normal career. I guess you might call it a normal career. I worked in uh, communications, marketing and branding, that kind of stuff. I uh, worked for Wizards of the Coast, the makers of Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, it was really, really fun uh, to uh, be in that gaming industry in that highly imaginative space. Um, and then uh, several years ago, um, you know, I was called back to adventure. And uh, so, of course, uh, joined the local search and rescue team and became uh, a nationally certified EMT. I was with the King County Rescue Team near Seattle. And that was the team that uh, that discovered the remains uh, of the Ted Bundy victims and the Green River Killer victims. But uh, very satisfying to go out and uh, spend my time on the weekends saving lives and reuniting families. Um, and so, you know, my wife and I, we were living up near Seattle with our kids. And uh, my mother-in-law had started several businesses in the Columbia River Gorge. And about two years ago, she passed away. And uh, someone um, needed to come down and run those businesses. So I stepped forward. One of them was a store that uh, in a little town called Bingen, Washington. Bingen is about uh, probably 60 minutes east of Portland, Oregon. So, And the Columbia River forms the boundary between Washington State and Oregon State. So we're sort of on the um, southern border of Washington State and uh, sort of right in the middle of the Cascade Mountains. And so uh, when I looked at that business, I recognized um, this could be a great outdoor store. I have a lot of experience with outdoor adventuring. And so we started to you know, bring in inventory and things like that that made sense. And it wasn't long before people started coming in spontaneously and telling us about the strange experiences they were having in the wilderness areas um, of the Columbia River Gorge. And so, of course, we got a lot of Sasquatch stories, and we also got a lot of UFO stories, and even some stranger things than that. And uh, I found it utterly fascinating. Wow, and that's kind of where this whole whole adventure began. Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a very you know interesting background, especially coming from someone who who goes out there into the wilderness for search and rescue. There, you hear all these stories online these days of people who work for like the National Forest Service, EMTs that go out there to find missing people. Sometimes people disappear in unexplained ways. And it's just, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff that's that's still out there, it seems like. Was there uh, a moment in your life before that where you kind of had a, an inkling in your mind that there might be something else going on in the world in terms of like cryptids and paranormal? A lot of people, when they're kids, it seems like there's something that kind of sparks in their head and they're like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know, I um, grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so uh, there was a show on called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock in the original Star Trek. And every kid in my neighborhood was intensely concerned about the proximity of Bigfoot to our, all of our houses, right? And so um, it's always been a part of uh, sort of the things that I think about when I'm in the wilderness. You know, and I have spent thousands of hours um, 
daytime, nighttime, deserts, glaciers, rainforests, jungles, uh, woodlands, you name it. And um, there have been some times when, for sure, there's been some very unusual experiences. Um, and, you know, when I was in the military, we had some very curious things happen as well. Uh, and then since then, um, I have, you know, studied martial arts. And the practice I was involved in was Aikido. And uh, it was then that I began to see uh, we were combining our martial arts training with a Zazen sitting meditation. And I began to see auras around some of the folks that I was meditating with. And uh, from there, uh, there were times when I would walk in the dojo and see um, different intensities of light uh, in the dojo. And uh, oftentimes now when I'm in the forest, I can see, oh, um, I guess you'd call them auras around a certain uh, geologic features or uh, people or different creatures. Um, you know that, and four bucks will get you a cup of coffee. But uh, it certain, <laughs> certainly is uh, interesting. And so it's something that I've always had an open mind towards. Um, and uh, this uh, store provided a really unique opportunity. And so, you know, we, we're getting these people coming in spontaneously telling us these stories. And I thought, well, let's see where this can go. So we put up a big sign in the window and it said, file your paranormal reports here. And it's Sasquatch sightings, UFO experiences, ghost encounters, portals, time anomalies. Um, we want to hear about it. And I instructed my employees. I said, uh, we're going to take these people seriously. Um, I recognize that their people do have experiences outside of normal everyday what people consider normal everyday experiences and let's not prejudge them. Let's give them a safe place to tell their stories. Let's treat them like adults with respect. Let's ask intelligent follow-up questions and let's see where this goes. And in the past, it's probably been a year and a half that we've been doing this now. We've had well over 160, maybe even closer to 180 reports now. And um, we have a form in the store. So people will come in, uh, they'll either verbally tell us a, a story. Uh, some folks are kind enough to take the time to fill out the form. And just recently, we put up uh, the form online on our website, so margiesoutdoorstore.com. And it was just uh, late last week, and we got another interesting UFO uh, report online. So um, lots and lots of reports have come in. And as you mentioned, um, lots of Sasquatch sightings, uh, lots of UFO sightings. Um, we've had reports of portals and time anomalies. Uh, we've had reports of little people. Uh, so these are humanoids that seem like perfectly normally formed people, but are only two to three feet tall, some even smaller than that. And um, we've had the thing that really has captivated my interest is reports of a gigantic black panther creature uh, crawling around Klickitat County. We've we call it the Clickitat Ape Cat, um, and as the interview goes on, uh, the reason for that name will become clear. But um, sure. I live in uh, the stores are in Clickitat County, uh, which is where the creature gets its name from. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so there is a lot of stuff going on out in the Columbia River Gorge. Can you describe like the history of this area and? your thoughts on why it might be such a paranormal hotspot? Yeah, sure. Um, hold on a second. Let me turn off this phone. Um, so 
just to set the stage, like I said, uh, the Columbia River is the second largest river in the United States, and it is the largest river in North and South America that empties into the Pacific Ocean. So um, it is a navigable river, meaning that barges and watercraft, uh, it's a transport corridor. So it, uh, where I live is the Columbia River Gorge. It's an 85-mile area that in the late 1980s was designated as a national scenic area. So this is the first national scenic area recognized by the United States government. And uh, that designation does a few things. One, it prevents, uh, well, it recognizes this is one of the most beautiful places in America. Then it um, also puts restrictions on the development here and it preserves some of the natural landscapes and things like that. And to give your listeners a sense of what a, beautiful place this is. Let me put up a picture. I'm going to share my screen here. Sure. And um, so the Columbia River Gorge, this is a picture we're looking uh, eastward at sunrise. Um, and we're looking at what's called the Lyle Gap. And in the foreground is uh, Memaloose Island. These pictures are also available on my website, rgsoutdoorstore.com. And so the gorge is um, cuts through the Cascade Mountains. Cascade Mountains include uh, some some of the tallest peaks in North America, Mount Rainier at 14,400 feet, Mount Adams, 12,000 feet, Mount St. Helens, Mount Hood. And um, and so the Cascade Mountains cover an area of about 80,000 square miles, which is roughly equivalent to the 10 smallest states in America. And so we, uh, the, um, Mountains form a rain shadow, so everything to the east is uh, basically desert, and everything to the west is uh, Pacific Northwest rainforest. Right. And um, because of that, uh, we have this incredible diversity of uh, biomes and uh, things like that. So um, uh, there are caves here. We have over 90 waterfalls. It's got the largest concentration of waterfalls anywhere in the United States. Um, as some of those waterfalls are over 600 feet tall. So it is a truly remarkable place. And uh, it all started, they estimate, about 20 million years ago when the Columbia River started flowing. And uh, so we've got this incredibly persistent energetic flow uh, of the river. Then about 15 million years ago, a gigantic fissure opened in the earth. It was 100 miles long at the Idaho-Washington border. And huge fountains of lava started spewing out of this thing. This is, imagine Mount Kilauea times 1,000. And so these eruptive periods happened over the course of several million years. And they estimate that there were over 300 lava flows. This is happening. It's cataclysmic for the landscape. And some of this lava flowed 300 miles all the way to the ocean. The volume of lava that came out over all of the eruptive periods um, was enough to cover the entire United States 60 feet deep in lava. And when it cooled, it cooled its basalt lava. So when it cooled, it cooled into these hexagonal columns, um, sort of like the Giant's Causeway over in England. And the interesting thing is that because there were all these different eruptive events, there is like a layer cake of all of these uh, lava flows. And as the magma cooled, its magnetic grains, so the iron content in it, was oriented towards the Earth's um, North Pole at the time that it cooled. Well, this is happening over hundreds of thousands of years. And so each of these layers has got a different magnetic orientation. 
And uh, when you look at the government navigation maps of the area, um, there in bright pink letters, it says, warning, your magnetic readings will be off in this region. So already we've got this very complicated energetic, magnetic, electromagnetic story going on. You take that, um, the river itself, there are 14 dams on the Columbia River, and they generate 44% of electric power in the U.S. So this is enough to power the city of Seattle and seven more cities just like it. So again, you've got this um, highly charged uh, energetic story going on here. So then about two million years ago, the Cascade Mountains started rising up and the river is cutting against those mountains. It is the only sea level passage through the Cascade Mountains. And so you've got this very strong horizontal flow of the river and then this vertical uplift of the mountains. So these are all uh, within 30 miles of the store. We've got three strata volcanoes over 10,000 feet tall. Um, and there are many lava flows that have come off those mountains that again have created lava tube caves. Some of them are miles and miles long. Uh, and so a very complicated story there. There's an area about 20 minutes from my house. We call it Broke Leg Barrows. It's sort of like right over here on the map. It's an area the size of uh, the island of Manhattan, but it is this 8,000-year-old lava flow. And compasses don't work there. Cell phones don't work there. There are no trails around it. And um, it's, you know, many people believe that it is, uh, but it's sort of like for, for your Tolkien fans out there, I'm on wheel, you know, when Gimli says it's an impassable labyrinth of razor sharp rocks. That is exactly <laughs> what this place is like. It's got, you know, these micro canyons and these uh, hidden pools and uh, hidden caves. And so, and that's just one of the areas around here. So you've got this incredible uplift from the the mountains and then uh, 15,000 years ago to 12,000 years ago we had what they call the ice age floods and for your listeners who are familiar with the work of Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson who come to the channeled scablands yes so at the end of the ice age we had these epic biblical level floods i mean we are talking end of the world kind of things where they estimate that uh so there's some stories say that there was a great uh, glacial lake that had formed, then an ice dam broke. Other people believe that meteorites hit the ice shelf in Canada and flash melted it. Whatever the cause, we had this gigantic flood that suddenly occurred, and it was equal to all of the rivers on Earth combined, times 10. So we're back from uh, that little audio technical glitch. And uh, so I was describing these ice age floods. And so um, enormous floods, and they created the channeled scablands in eastern Washington, and they got backed up at the basically the eastern end of the gorge, a place called Wallula Gap. And then they started rocketing through the Columbia River Gorge. And um, at places, these floods were over a thousand feet deep. And you can see the geological evidence for that while you're here. But what it did was it scoured all of the uh, soil and everything off uh, of the canyon walls. And so we have these soaring cliffs in some places in the span of a half a mile, you go from sea level to 3000 feet. And so it is this incredibly um, beautiful place because all of that rock has become exposed. So we have this really interesting dynamic where we've had these traumas of both fire and flood here. And uh, there's this very complicated energetic story going on. Um, you know, we you can talk about that from an esoteric standpoint of these energy flows of the river, but also from an engineering standpoint where, you know, that energy is literally 
captured by the dams and turned into electricity that we use for so many things today. So it's a very unique and interesting place and stunningly beautiful. And so um, I think that it has something to do with those traumas that occurred here that may have thinned the boundaries between the physical realm that we encounter every day and the etheric realm or some of the other realms of existence or may have made adjacent universes or worlds um, more accessible. And whether that's a question of people, um, uh, things coming from those other realms and, and, and being manifesting here or people accidentally slipping into those realms themselves, I really don't know what it is, but it's clear that there is something going on here because we way over index on all these different phenomena. Um, you know, Washington state, of course, is considered one of the Bigfoot, you know, hotspots. And in terms of UFO sightings, um, Washington has the highest per capita uh, sightings of UFOs. In fact, the very first thing that set off the flying saucer craze back in the 1940s, early 50s, was a Kenneth Arnold sighting. That's right. Yeah. And um, so he was flying a private uh, airplane near Mount Rainier, and he observed nine saucer-like craft behaving in ways unlike any aircraft that he had ever seen before. And they wound up flying um, to Mount Adams, which is just 30 miles north of the store here. In fact, I think I might have a picture of that. What's cool about Mount Adams is that uh, it has long been a UFO hotspot. And here's a picture. Um, so there are stories um, that Mount Adams actually has a physical hangar door that opens and uh, people have seen crafts flying in and out of that. Um, we've also had stories of people saying they see portals floating in the air next to it where the sky and uh, roughly circular area looks uh, behind that circular area looks different than the sky around it. And so um, there's this really rich, um, tradition here. And I think the thing that amazed me was we started taking in these reports and it seems like everybody who lives down here has a neighbor or has themselves had some kind of either Bigfoot encounter or UFO sighting or something. It's it's really phenomenal, phenomenal how common it is. Yeah, that's uh, definitely seems like there's with all these reports and stories dating back probably decades, if not centuries, mm -hmm. it seems like this, this spot is one of, one of the types of window areas or a vortex, like the Bermuda triangle or the Alaska triangle or the Bridgewater triangle. I'm not sure if there's a triangle consideration out there, but, uh, it definitely seems similar, uh, an area where the veil is thin, if you will. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there are times, um, so I, you know, my, I live in, um, there are two counties on the Washington side, Skamania County, which by the way, back in the sixties was the first county in the United States who outlaw hunting Bigfoot. And if there's laws on the books here that if you hunt and kill Bigfoot, you will go to jail and you'll pay thousands of dollars in fines. And so um, that's Skamania County. And that's sort of on the Western wet side of uh, the mountains. And then my stores are right on the edge of the desert. Uh, in Klickitat County. And so when my morning commute is through this stunningly beautiful, I see waterfalls and I go through tunnels and uh, drive through the rainforest to the desert. And so 
you know, so much of um, strange things, when they manifest, they manifest at transition points. So dusk and dawn are transition points. And, you know, our store sort of sits directly on that transition point between the rainforest and the desert. And it's a remarkably, you know, like it's like they turned off the trees when you get to the eastern side of the uh, mountains. And so, you know, whether it is uh, that um, those transitions that are going on here, whether it's this energetic flow, whether it's the way the electromagnetism has been locked into into different orientations and then that's exposed. All these things, you know, I've got theories uh, as to why we see so much activity here, but um, it seems like it may be some combination of all of that. And, um, you know, we can get into some of the more detailed stories of some of the critters and phenomena that people have been encountering out here. Yeah, I'd love to hear some more. Uh, if you have any uh, accounts of, of other UFO stories, um, especially involving volcanoes, there's a lot of video out there and stories of people witnessing UFOs or, or UAPs as mm -hmm. they're now more commonly called, or maybe not commonly, but they yeah. seem, they seem to have some kind of attraction or maybe there's some kind of energy draw that they get from that. I'd love to hear some other, uh, some stories if you have it. In March, we received a, a report and this one came with the picture, uh, which is really cool. Let me see. So right now we're looking at Mount Adams. Um, but the one that I want to show you is this one right here. So this um, is Underwood Mountain, and it's maybe three miles from the store. And a person, a person took this picture from 11 miles away. They were uh, upstream. And so we did a little bit of um, image enhancement on it. Not a ton of pixels to work with, but what we do see is this tic-tac-shaped uh craft uh, floating above the mountain, uh, no discernible wings or rotors. And so this is just one of the types of UFOs that people have reported here. And really, for me, they sort of fall into three different categories. We have things that seem like traditional UFOs, and these will be reported as um, sort of a tic-tac shape, saucer shape. Uh, we also have triangular shapes that people have reported. Some folks say that they have seen them flying along uh, along the river and then diving into the river, so transmedium. Um, and so, uh, and then others say that they have seen large triangular uh, vehicles. They describe them as craft. Uh, we have reports near the Dow's Dam, which is a big hydroelectric dam, and near the Bonneville Dam. Uh, these dams are probably, mm, I want to say, 40 or 50 miles apart. And so in both of those areas, uh, we we hear about that. Uh, near Mount Adams, where that uh, hangar door is, um, there is actually a place called ESETI Ranch. ESETI stands for Enlightened Contact with Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And so that's maybe 25 minutes from the store. And uh, for decades, people have been going out to the ranch there. Uh, you can camp out there. You bring your lawn chair. And you sit on Jim's uh, on Jim's ranch, and people watch UFOs fly around Mount Adams all night. Uh, people come from all over the world. Uh, some come as skeptics and leave believers. And so there's definitely a phenomenon. And it sounds to me like, uh, and I haven't had the chance to visit there myself. They get booked up pretty quick. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, orbs, like uh, glowing orbs, that people see there. 
along with other types of craft. Gotcha. And so we've got the traditional craft, the UAPs, UFOs, the kind of things that uh, folks are recording on, you know, like those uh, fighter jet uh, battle cams. Then we get a lot of reports of orbs. And so, uh, you know, lights in the sky. Um, These are often seen uh, on the Washington side. There's a highway, sort of a two lane highway that parallels the river. Uh, It's called Highway 14. um, And my store is on Highway 14 in Benjamin, Washington. But uh, I myself have seen orbs while driving down that road. Of course, I drive it every day. And um, so we have had many, many reports of people seeing glowing orbs uh, floating in the sky. Um, And some folks say that they have seen orbs in the forests. And uh, there's a really phenomenal, I'm going to show the screen again here. Sure. Um, uh, there's a rock formation called Beacon Rock, and I'm going to pull it up here. So this is a ancient core of a volcano. Uh, it's 850 feet tall, and there is a trail that's actually pinned to the side of these cliffs, and uh, you can get to the top of it. It's a pretty easy climb, actually. Um, and uh, so in this area, we have had reports of glowing orbs at the base of it. So this picture was taken, um, I think, close to a decade ago, maybe even more. Uh, This is an artist interpretation of this report. A person went out to watch a meteor shower, and they reported seeing uh, glowing orbs closer to the ground. So these are more the willow, the wisp type of um, sightings. Yes. Very common for folks to report having seen orbs in the forests in the area. And to me, these may or may not be related, right? Um, and so what these are seems like it's different than these reported mechanical crafts. And then the third category we have for UFO or UAPs are what look like advanced military hardware. And so we've had stories of folks talking about, um, black, uh, very futuristic looking helicopters flying through the canyons, uh, that don't make any sound. And so, Uh, Since the 1940s, uh, about 100 miles upstream is the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. So this was the country's first true um, sort of secret site. Uh, It's where, for the Manhattan Project, they created the plutonium that fueled the first nuclear bomb. And then during the Cold War, they um, forged enough plutonium there to create 60,000 nuclear weapons. And so there have been sightings even before the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting, uh, UFOs near Hanford uh, for a long, long time. And so we know that there is government activity in the area, obviously as a main transportation corridor and with all these hydroelectric plants here, it's tactically a very significant place. And so it's common for us to see military aircraft in the skies, but it's also clear that there are advanced vehicles here. And we've had folks come into the store, tell the stories how they were hiking and a black suburbanal show up and dudes in suits will jump out and tell them they can't hike there. And so wow. uh, very uh, unusual things around that. And those are just some of the, the stories we get about um, UFOs uh, in the area. And to me, um, you know, at the store, we take in the reports, we you know, ask intelligent questions and we look for different patterns and things like that. Yeah, that's a great way to go about it. And, you know, what a great idea to just going back to, to 
to Margie's uh, of offering that up for people in the area to kind of help validate their experiences. Because at least when I was growing up in, in the 90s, you know, when people came forward with stories of seeing UFOs or something strange they couldn't explain, they're largely written off. And uh, what a good way to just kind of get some some data and help people understand and, and feel like they're they're not uh you know crazy <laughs> you know it's been one of the uh most unexpected joys out of this whole process um so we have folks come in they often uh, have had this experience um they've been carrying with them for years right and they may have told family members or friends and been laughed at or derided and to come in and have their story listened to and have them not be belittled um, and taken seriously. There's a big emotional release for a lot of folks. And there have been some really beautiful human interactions with people that we've had who for a long time have had um, been disbelieved, maybe felt that they were crazy. And just to be able to talk about it in a rational open forum um, is uh, very cathartic for folks. Um, you know, we there's one phenomenon that has really um, is amazing to me because I had never heard anything like it. And we call it the Clickitat Ape Cat. And so uh, and the reason why I'm talking about this now is that uh, one of my employees had actually seen this creature and her family didn't believe her. And I'll, I'll kind of get into um, her relating of her experience here in a second. So the first time that I heard about it we had a gentleman come into the store and he had been orienteering. So map and compass work out near uh, Buck Creek. So this is probably four miles, five miles away from the store. And um, he was a friend of the family. So my mother-in-law knew him uh, and it helped his family out. She was a registered pharmacist. So she um, helped his mother out with some type of medical problem she was having. And it took him 45 minutes to work up the courage to tell the story, but he said that he was orienteering near Buck Creek. His compass started acting strange. And then he looked up and across the creek, he saw this enormous Black Panther creature. And uh, it was sitting there calmly watching him. So uh, as he's telling me this story, some uh, big flags are going up in my head. I'm thinking, geez, okay, so we, of course, we have cougar out here. Um, but cougar, are typically tan and when they express their melanin or their, their fur gets darker it doesn't go black it goes to a reddish color we've talked to many wildlife biologists they all say that nope there's no such thing as black cougars they're all either tan or red but black is not a color that's recognized by science now there could be a mutant form of it but in my back of my head i'm thinking okay this is something to pay attention to he said the creature stood four to five feet tall at the shoulder now that's another big, <laughs> wow, what's going on here? Because that is larger than a tiger, which is the largest cat uh, existing on the planet today. And tigers maybe get three feet tall at the shoulder. Cougars, two to two and a half feet tall, maybe. Uh, tigers, three to three and a half feet tall. There's nothing uh, that's living today that is four to five feet tall at the shoulder. Now, in my research, I uncovered that there is one creature in the fossil record, uh, a creature called Panthera atrox, this was a, the American lion. It uh, was definitely in Washington state uh, nine to 10,000 years ago. Uh, 
at that boundary, but it went extinct at the Younger Dryas boundary, you know, during uh, right after the floods and everything yeah. else. Uh, but that creature, uh, its skeletal moraines remains, and we have many skeletal moraines because several of them were found at the uh, La Brea Tar Pits down in California. And we know that these creatures were four to five feet tall at the shoulder and easily weighed over a thousand pounds. Interestingly, they had the largest uh, brain um, cavity of any cat that ever existed, either by sheer volume or by as a comparison of their weight to brain size ratio. So an enormous cat with a very big brain, uh, but supposedly it's extinct. So he's describing this creature to me. Uh, we had this compass thing, but that could just be because compasses go weird here regularly. And uh, we've got a black coloration. We've got this enormous size. He said it was very muscular. Said its fur was long, four to five inches long, which is not like a cougar's fur. And then he said, and it had a face that looked like a monkey. And I thought, well, no, that is strange. Uh, that is definitely not something that's recognized by science. And he described it as having a flatter snout. So as I'm imagining it, and through subsequent reports where people have reported the same thing, you know, like, like a German shepherd has got a very long snout, but a pug has got a flatter face. Yes. And so you can have that wide variation in a single species. And so everyone seems to describe this flattened face. He said it had intelligent ape-like eyes and other primate features. And uh, so, you know, we talked about that and um, some of those details I like to keep close to the chest just in case other people report. I like to have some information held back so we can sort of verify. So at the high level, he had told me this incredible story and I was fascinated by it. He seemed very genuine and earnest. And we have, you know, folks come into the store and I would say 95% of the people are genuine and earnest. And some people come in and they're just having fun and telling a tale. And as far as we're concerned, no harm, no foul. Like if you want to, you know, have some fun, uh, great. But this was one of the ones where, you know, as we looked at all the details, he seemed like he believed that he had seen what he described. The next day I was talking to my employees, but I was very excited. And um, there's a young woman who works for us named Missy. And as I described the creature, she started shaking and she said, oh my God, I've seen that thing myself. And so there are two main river canyons that come off of Mount Adams. Um, there's the White Salmon River, which Buck Creek is uh, flows into. And then there's the Klickitat River, uh, which so White Salmon River is in the rainforest side, Klickitat River is on the desert side. And she was coming into work one morning, this was at dawn, and she saw an enormous black cat. Uh, she didn't get a look at its face, but she said the thing was gigantic, uh, very muscular. Uh, she watched it walk into a small patch of tall grass. And so she pulled off her car. She was so enthralled by it. And, um, and it never left that small patch of tall grass. She got out of her car eventually, saw no evidence of it, wondered if she should talk to the houses nearby, decided they would think she was crazy. So she didn't. But she did talk to her family about it. And to me, um, and so they kind of, they tried to insert something normal <laughs> into her story, right? They said, you probably saw a cow. Now, this is a grown woman. <laughs> and you would think that like, I know the difference between a cow and a, and a cat. And um, it's this big black tail that uh, is really kind of the giveaway for me. But what's fascinating is in her description of the size of the creature, her family thought she was describing something as large as a cow. 
So very, very large creature. That's, like I said, way off the charts. Um, the only big black cats that live in North America are jaguars, but their range is a thousand miles south of uh, where we are. So to me, like, wow, this was two people that I believed, right? Uh, Missy, uh, honest and earnest young lady. Um, and I've known her for years. She had never before until I described this creature talked about this experience. And then this other gentleman, friend of the family. So with the stores, I've got a radio advertising budget. So we started putting out radio ads. Has anyone else seen this creature? And I put up, you know, flyers at trailheads. And sure enough, people started coming in and telling us stories about this big black cat. And in the past year and a half, we received nearly 60 reports, wow. some of them from senior law enforcement officials. The stories go back 30 years, 30 or 40 years. And everyone talks about, so 100% of the stories talk about a big black muscular cat with a long black tail. About half of those stories describe the creature as being enormous, four to five feet tall at the shoulder. We've had folks say that they were driving down the road at night and they saw it leap across the road. And when its body was extended, it was the length of a, uh, the width of a two lane uh, road. So, you know, white line, yellow line, white line, its body stretched out is that long. Enormous, right? Wow. We've had hunters say they've seen it in their scope and decided not to shoot because they were afraid it was a, you know, maybe an endangered species. Uh, one gentleman said that he saw it in his driveway uh, and it had a kitten with it. So that uh, uh, seemed to be reproducing uh, with young ones. Um, and so, uh, and many, many reports, a lot of the stories are pretty un unexciting. Like I was driving my ATV, this giant black cat jumped across the trail, scared the crap out of me. And I right. never saw. And what to me makes it so believable is that so many of the stories are cl clearly hardly stories at all. It's not like this person is trying to, you know, sensationalize a, an encounter. Um, it's just a brief glimpse of it. Um, and off you go. So we have been um, trying to understand what it is that people are encountering. There have been enough reports, like I said, we've probably received 60 reports now, some of them from, you know, like wild and forest firefighters and having done that kind of work myself, like you are dropped off in some of the most remote wilderness in an inherently dangerous situation. These are folks who know what they're doing and know what's out there, right? Like you don't become a wildland forest firefighter and not know what a bear looks like or a cougar looks like or elk or anything else like these are some of the most competent uh wilderness workers that there are and um a whole fire crew saw it and uh they were going to be in this area for three days um, before they got picked up and they wondered what they would do if it showed up in camp um fortunately uh of all the reports we've had none of them uh, have described a hostile encounter with this thing and so that's at least a small bit of good news yeah but Really, really interesting. The origins of what it might be, well, there's a couple of theories, but we really don't know for sure. Huh. Interesting. What are some of these these theories uh, behind well, what this could be? So um, in the Great Lakes area, uh, the Native Americans have a tradition of what they call a race of underwater panther protectors. These creatures are called Meshepishu. And 
So there, this uh, when Native Americans talk about things being uh, from underwater or underground or from the sky, they're talking about a creature that has a foot in the spirit realm and in the physical realm. And um, one of the descriptions of Meshepeshu is that it looks like a black panther with the face of a man. So immediately that caught my attention as a very interesting um, phenomenon. And here in Klickitat County, we have petroglyphs and uh, this is a really fascinating image here. So this petroglyph is near Horse Thief Lake, and it depicts a cat-like creature uh, with wavy water lines underneath its head. Uh, and then the water lines have a crack running through them. And um, you know, there's some esoteric traditions that believe that once something is carved into the rock, it is bound by the rock, but if that rock is cracked, um, the essences of that being is released. And so this is an area um, called Horse Thief Lake. Uh, it's a place where Lewis and Clark actually visited when they were coming through in 1805. And right across the lake from where this petroglyph is, is a place called Horse Thief Butte. Uh, it looks like a desert mesa from the road, and it's only five minutes off the road. But you get up into it, and it is riddled with a labyrinth of hidden canyonways and amphitheaters. There are petroglyphs carved into the walls. Mm -hmm. And it is a place where you can see uh, it's clearly a spiritually charged area. Uh, you can get up on top of it and you can see the expanse of the Columbia River, both east and west. And you can feel the energy of the flow, uh, even if you're not sensitive to that kind of thing at all. It's, if you just calm your mind for just a moment, you can feel it there. So place of great power. Yeah. I was there um, before we started receiving reports by the cat. And I was, and you can look down into this horse thief lake, um, which is right along the edge of the Columbia. And I saw a large dark creature swimming in the water there. Um, there were some ducks on the water, some of them, uh, so I could get a sense of the size of this thing it was clearly larger than a person, but smaller than a car. And it would swim around on the surface. It didn't seem to be going any place in particular. Then it would submerge and go underwater for up to five minutes at a time. Then it would come back up. And I was too far away to really know what I was looking at. And it was only after we had started receiving reports that I realized that it may have been a, one of these uh, cats. Wild. But again, I can't confirm anything. I was too far away to make any determination other than a large, dark creature swimming in the water. So there is this sort of esoteric tradition we have had reports of one guy saw it and on our website we've got a video and don't get excited um, but he started to film this creature he was out working in a shed um, near buck creek actually and um, he said once he started filming it and the video has the creature's eyes in it and not much more he said that immediately the phone battery in his headlamp and his cell phone went dead at the same time so that's a interesting again a coincidence but it's seems to if it is a paranormal creature uh interference with electromagnetic uh devices is common and so we saw it with the compass and the first sighting and then again with this guy who was trying to take some video of it interestingly the folks up at the east city ranch um one of the races of beings that they claim to be in contact with is a race of feline humanoids and their logo shows a, a big lion's head uh, because of that. So there, there's this interesting paranormal connection about what this may be. Um, 
or it may be some type of mutant cougar uh, or some type of large cat that escaped. And one of the most interesting stories related to that has to do with that Hanford nuclear reservation that I mentioned earlier. So um, back during World War II, uh, the Allies were intensely concerned that the Nazis would unlock the secrets of the atom before the Allies did. And so they started the Manhattan Project. Famously, everyone knows that they wanted to build the bomb. And so Los Alamos was the site where the engineers designed the bomb, but Hanford was the site where they uh, created the plutonium. And not to put too fine a point on it, but they were literally toying with the fabric of reality there. Plutonium is an element that doesn't exist in nature, and it's only exists when man makes it, right? And so they were making plutonium on an industrial scale at Hanford. And eventually they would have uh, nine different nuclear reactors running there at the same time. The Hanford Reservation itself is a top secret government site. It was started during World War II. It's the size of half of Rhode Island, so 600 square miles. And it's got 90 miles of coastline along the Columbia River. They chose the Columbia because they were utilizing the hydroelectric power there. Uh, they needed that energy to, uh, to smelt the plutonium. So they, so Los Alamos is where they're building the bomb. Hanford is where they're building the fuel for the bomb and toying with the fabric of reality. And so from day one, they had an animal testing program there. Uh, so the Nazis were obviously very interested in uh, super soldiers, super animals. They had actually brought back uh, an extinct Ice Age creature called an aurochs, this giant hyper-aggressive bull. And so they were very much into these programs. And back in the 40s, they knew that radiation could induce mutations, but they didn't know much more than that. And so we started a program at Hanford from day one. The doctor that they put in charge of it, Dr. Donaldson, his primary claim to fame was creating super animals. He had created a thing called the Donaldson super trout, which is eight times larger and stronger than a normal trout, reaches reproductive maturity in half the time, and it can swim in salt water and fresh water and is more survivable and all this other kind of things. So this is the guy that they pick to run their animal testing program at Hanford. And then he eventually um, goes on to Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific and the Castle Bravo test and all that kind of stuff. And during the Cold War, a guy named Bill Bear takes over. And there's a story that Bill Bear tells in his oral histories. Bill Bear is now dead, but he was running the um, biology lab there about how they were irradiating apex predators and doing experiments on them. And he had, uh, they say, between the reports vary between 20 and 50 alligators that they were experimenting on. And um, one night, six of these irradiated experimental apex predators, uh, these alligators outsmarted the scientists and escaped into the Columbia River. No. Yeah. <laughs> Which That's is crazy, bad news. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's like a movie in the making. And <laughs> so they wound up um, sending out these covert army hunting teams to hunt these creatures down. And from August to January, they were able to capture four of the six, but two remained at large. And, uh, there are stories in the newspaper about it. Um, he even says in these interviews that even as far into the 80s, people were calling him and asking if he knew anything about alligators in the river. He would always say no and hang up and he laughs about it in the interviews. But it's kind of horrifying that that was sort of the cavalier attitude that they had. So, um, you, so the question is, why are they doing that? Like, why do they have alligators in Washington state? Why are they irradiating them? Why are they doing experiments on them? 
Well, right now, a quarter of the U.S. nuclear stockpile is guarded by dolphins. Turns out that animals are far more effective sentries than humans. And the dolphins uh, guard some of our uh, sites, particularly like uh, the Bangor Subbase up here in, in on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, where it's um, so the dolphins are especially trained to identify uh, like Soviet scuba divers coming in. And they're better than sonar because sonar doesn't know if it's a tuna or a sea lion or a Soviet diver. And what I understand is the dolphins have a special apparatus. It's like a harpoon that is mounted on their snout and they go and they tag that diver and it inflates a balloon, brings the diver to the surface. And then wow. the Navy screws them up. But this has been going on since the 1950s. And, and so we're using animals to guard our most sensitive nuclear sites. And if you look at Hanford, it's got 90 miles of river coastline. You can't bring dolphins in there because that's freshwater, not saltwater. And so what we think was happening was they were trying to create uh, sentinel creatures to guard this site. Right. And if you're a zealous cold warrior doing your job, you're going to say, well, what is the world's most uh, effective riverine predator? And that is 100 um, percent a, uh, a, a black jaguar. So jaguars, um, they live in, you know, the Amazon uh, and they are able to hold their breath for 15 minutes. They can eat underwater. They can kill caiman alligators with a single bite to the back of the head. As far as big cats go, pound for pound, they are the strongest. They have night vision that's six times better than a human being. And they always, always, always instinctively drag their prey to shore. And so this is a set of traits that um, any cold warrior would think are ideal for a sentinel creature to guard a site like Hanford. What we think happened was that they were, they had a jaguar training program. They may have been modifying those jaguars. Jaguars are notoriously the hardest of the big cats to train. Lions are easier to train. You see them in every circus. And so, and jaguars and lions actually can mate and produce viable offspring. And so it may have been some combination of a breeding program, uh, some of the irradiation that they were doing. They created some mutant jaguars, uh, very large in size. Those creatures, just like the alligators, outsmarted the scientists and escaped from their captivity. And then just like the alligators, they weren't able to capture them all. And when you look at um, this map behind me, which is of the Columbia River Gorge, you can see that if you go uh, north, east, or south, you'll head deeper into the desert, not not a suitable habitat. If you head to the west, uh, you get to the mountains where there's this, all this available cover and habitat and food sources and everything else. So it's a pretty strong theory that these big Klickitat 8 cats may be legacies of the Cold War and uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> I had never, never heard anything like that before in Washington. I know there's, you know, tons of other stories of cryptid, especially Bigfoot, of course. Uh, but the Klickitat ape cat. Wow. That's doesn't sound like something you want to run into. <laughs> yeah. What I find fascinating, you know, so if you look at almost every culture in the world, whether it's Egyptian or, um, you know, South American, the panther is a protector creature. And, you know, even with this um, nuclear story, like the archetype is they were, if the theory is right, they were designing a protector creature, like that creature was designed to protect. 
um, and escaped. So again, what I love about it and what I love about what's going on at the store is like a couple times a week, a Scooby-Doo mystery walks through our front door and you know, <laughs> we, you know, uh, if it's a more recent story, um, we'll go out and investigate it to the best of our ability. But, you know, um, I'm a storekeep, I'm an old adventurer, um, but I'm not, uh, you know, a trained researcher. And one of the reasons why I'm going on, you know, shows like yours is that I am inviting folks who are better investigators or maybe more intuitive people than myself to come out and see for yourself, because there are some things out here that, um, uh, like, you, you won't have to go far before you run into some kind of weirdness out here. And, uh, you know, so I'm inviting uh, the investigators and the curious and the spiritually sensitive and intuitive to come out and help us figure out these mysteries. Um, it's been unbelievably fun and incredibly joyful. My daughter, nine-year-old daughter, is one of my co-investigators, and so if we get a <laughs> if we get a report, uh, we'll hop in the four by four and uh, off into the wilderness. We'll go. And, wow! Uh, so uh, you you go out and do some investigating on the ground and stuff to check things out. Yeah, um, we got a really interesting report um, from someone who I've known for quite a few years now. And they were out pretty close to that Horse Thief Butte area. And they were driving late at night after their work shift had ended. And they said on the side of the road, they saw a two and a half foot tall humanoid uh, with a head that looked like a praying mantis. And so we went into one of those... AI art generators. And I created a bunch of different variants and asked him which one looked most like what he had seen. And the image on the screen is uh, the one that was closest to what he had seen. Uh, this image also is on margiesoutdoorstore.com for those folks who um, are just listening. And uh, so he drove by this creature standing along the side of the road. And um, right after he drove past it, the all the lights in his center console of his car went dark and his phone started flipping out you know alarms started going off on it uh this is close to two o'clock in the morning and then um about two or three hundred yards down the road he uh started feeling dizzy he pulled the car over thought maybe he should go back and check it out because he knew i'd be interested in it and when he thought hell no i'm not gonna go back and see what that weird two foot tall creatures on the side of the road so uh, within a couple of days, I went out to the same site and, um, you know, I did some EMF readings, which were nothing unusual there. Uh, I did find some tracks, but they were pretty inconclusive. And um, interestingly, he said that in the same spot on the road, at least on five other occasions, he saw an owl standing on the side of the road at the exact same place where he had this encounter. And um, the one thing that my investigation did turn up was I found some of the owl pellets. You know, owls will eject uh, the fur and bones of um, the creatures that they've eaten. And so that part of the story was true. Interestingly, this area is in the channeled scablands area, uh, sort of, it's going to be like that little spot on the map behind me, that little dip right there. Um, and there are high tension power lines uh, just about 500 yards away from the exact location that are coming off one of those big hydro dams. And so, um, yeah, this is one of those cases that we were able to follow up, uh, up on within days. Um, but this is not the only story we've had of 
uh, small, strange little humanoids. Um, we've had other folks come in, draw pictures of them, uh, and they look like, um, you know, they've got big ears. Uh, and as I did further research, um, there is at least one account uh, from a Yakima Indian, so the Yakima Indian tribe is sort of a confederated tribe of many of the indigenous people who lived in the area, describes how the petroglyphs were carved by small uh, humanoids, uh, perfectly formed but short in stature, and they were the ones that really, uh, carved the petroglyphs. That's just one story. I'm sure that there are others, and I don't mean to um, speak in place of the the native tribes and nations that live here, but uh, an interesting data point nonetheless. And so, again, all types of strange uh, phenomenon um, out here in the gorge. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're just about at the uh, the top of the hour here. This has been a really eye-opening and fascinating conversation here, uh, James. Um, so. I guess what's uh, what's 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 in the future for for Margie's? Uh, do you do you plan on putting together some teams to go out and and uh, check these things out? <laughs> well, um, so like I said, uh, I've got a. <laughs> once we started getting reports, you know, I've got a FJ Cruiser, sort of it's like a a Jeep like kind of vehicle, and it's now. Uh, it's rigged up with cameras and spotlights and everything else. And so whenever we get a report, we go out and check it out. Um, but uh, some of the things that we're doing, uh, I'm, I've created what we call Arcane Adventure Maps. So it's sort of like a self-guided tour to some of the hotspots. Right now we've got uh, one called um, Mysterious Beast to the Mystic Mesa, which focuses on that Horse Thief Butte area and gives some of the paranormal reports we've received in the area. And obviously directions on how to get there and local lore and legends about it. The other one is called um, Apparitions Amongst the Ancient Monoliths. And that one focuses on that Beacon Rock area where not only have we had those uh, sightings of the orbs, but there's also been reports from the maintenance workers of ghostly apparitions near the trailheads. And so these are two things you can pick up in the store. Uh, the map that's behind me is also available in the store. So that's one of the ways we're trying to take the information that we're getting and give it back to folks in a way that they can check it out themselves and, uh, you know, uh, have some fun investigating these mysteries on their own. Uh, in September, I'm working with a tour company and we're putting together a sort of a bus driving tour, paranormal tour of the gorge. Uh, looks like it'll go probably uh, 120 miles and take it to uh, where people have seen UFOs and Sasquatches and ape cats, uh, you know, take you to an old ghost town and uh, see the petroglyphs and all that kind of stuff. And then hopefully in May, we're trying to put together a conference and have folks come out and have some speakers and uh, some events and stuff like that. So uh, again, I find this place to be, you know, it is a living landscape. Um, you know, Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. You know, there's, it's still very geologically active. It's a place that to me is, enchanted and uh, one of the still wondrous places in the world where it's common for the local folk to have really strange and unusual encounters. And uh, for me, I want to share it with folks and I want to understand these mysteries more. So again, I'm inviting folks to come out and investigate for themselves. Great, great. That is uh, definitely an awesome thing that you're doing. Now, uh, 
again, can you tell my listeners where they can find the best place to find you online? Yeah. So best place is Margie's Uh One of the tabs, there's the paranormal tab, and that gives you all the juicy details on uh, some of the interesting stuff that we've been seeing out here. If you want to get a hold of me, um, staff at Margie's is a great way to uh, send me an email and uh, we can get in touch and um, be happy to answer questions for folks. Great. Well, thanks again, James, for coming on to the show. And uh, for everyone else, take care and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again to James for coming on the show today. I'm definitely going to need to have him on again sometime in the future to give an update because there is so much that seems to be going on out there from UFOs and UFO bases portals, Bigfoot sightings, little people sightings, this click-a-tat ape cat creature, which is very reminiscent of something like alien big cats in the UK. And there's also other accounts and stories of people in the United States that see these large big black cats that aren't supposed to be there. They shouldn't exist, yet people are, are seeing them. And as James gets more stories and goes on some more investigations and expeditions, I'm definitely curious to hear about what he finds. It's definitely an area that I never knew about before, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to see how this all develops, and I hope you are too. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode today. And as always, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there listening to the show. Those of you who have been here since the beginning and those who have joined along the way and also to newcomers out there. There seems to be a, a big influx of new people lately. So thanks for checking out my show and listening and sharing it around. It gets the word out and it's always super helpful to help grow the show and get us to the next level. In fact, the Strangeology podcast wouldn't be possible or wouldn't be where it is today without the support of listeners like you. And we're just getting this train going. There's still so, so much more to come. So definitely stick around and stay tuned. And if you're looking for a way to support the show again with what I'm doing here, you can always go check out my Patreon, which is listed in the show notes. So if you like membership exclusives like ad free episodes, early access and all that kind of stuff, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. And again, to any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast, or if you're someone with a story, or if you're an author or a researcher and would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com. And don't forget to follow me over on all of my social media accounts for almost daily updates. I'm not doing as much as I was just because I got a lot going on these days. But if you're looking for more content outside of the podcast, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. I'm most active posting short form video content to Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And I also have 
some plans and scripts in place to start doing some longer form video content on YouTube as well. So definitely give me a subscribe over there and check everything else out because there's a lot of it and I'm everywhere. <laughs> And if you're looking for Strangeology merch, I do have an Etsy shop where I have a whole assortment of cryptid merch, alien merch, just general 40 on a 40 in gear available on things like t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves. I've also got stickers, magnets, prints, mugs, enamel pins tumblers and more. There's something for everyone there. And I'm always trying to add new designs as often as I can. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can head on over to strangeology.etsy.com. I appreciate the support. All right. I think that's about all from me for now. I'm going to take a quick break here. And James was actually able to stick around for a little while longer to chat about some more of the stories of high strangeness in the Columbia River Gorge. It's a really fascinating conversation, so you won't want to miss it. Patrons, stick with me. And for everyone else, until the next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange. strangeology beyond so this was an awesome conversation and thanks james again for sticking